I am excited about tonight's lesson. I absolutely love this study, the study on Melchizedek, and we'll get into that in a little bit. I'm also excited, just on a side note that you guys don't care about, this is the first time tonight I get to teach out of uh, my new Bible. Uh, my old Bible had just completely fallen apart, and it fell into honey mustard sauce this week. So um, Galatians through Revelation is stuck together. But this is a new Bible, and I can't open it to Genesis 14, so it just kind of flaps shut. So we'll see what happens here. But... What I like about tonight's study with Melchizedek is this is normally the type of study that we would not spend a lot of time in on a Sunday morning. If we were going through the book of Genesis, we'd probably jump down to our last point, talking about the king of Sodom versus the king of Melchizedek. And we would mention Melchizedek here a little bit. The beauty of Wednesday nights is we get a chance to chew on stuff that we normally wouldn't chew on. And I just want to tell you this. Go back to our studies in the beginning of the book of Genesis. We talk about how there's three different layers of stuff when it comes to studying the Bible. The first layer is layer of items that are non-negotiable. They're, they're just not. There, there's no debate on it, and we, can't, we, we cannot agree to disagree on this. We have to agree that Jesus is the only way to be saved. We have to agree in the idea of the virgin birth. We have to agree that Jesus is God and that the Bible is God's inspired word. Those are the level one things that we just can't ignore. We can't. The level two stuff is stuff that is fun to talk about. We may have some differences of opinion on, and it, it may be kind of important. You know, we may say, oh, you know, well, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib rapture. Or, you know, we may have some questions about some translation issues. And it's a little bit more debatable, but I would hope that we could work past that. The third level is stuff that we just got to stop and realize, okay, in the whole scheme of things, it doesn't matter. It really just doesn't matter. Maybe in the whole scheme of things, like when we talked about within the beginning of the book of Genesis, where it says the sons of God came down with the daughters of men. And we talked about what does that mean? Is that Caleb's line? Excuse me, is that, is that the intermixing of Cain's line with Seth's line? Is that angels that came down? It's fun to talk about, but it doesn't really matter. Tonight's lesson on Melchizedek is one of those issue three things. I remember being at a Bible study, gosh, probably about 15 years ago now, and the subject of Melchizedek came up. And I saw these two people argue on who Melchizedek was. And I started thinking at that time, does it really matter? It doesn't. And so tonight you may say, well, if it doesn't matter, why do we have to even talk about it? Because this guy, Melchizedek, is mentioned all over the place in the Bible. So God says it's obviously something to talk about. And you may stop and say, okay, I don't even know who Melchizedek is, so I don't even understand what the issue is. So what are we even going to debate on? That's the fun of tonight. So let's jump right into this. If you remember correctly from our study last week in Genesis 14, we had this really interesting history lesson. That these kings, two groups of kings, got into this battle. And to make a long story short, Lot was taken as a prisoner of war. Lot is Abraham's nephew. So Abraham designed his own army, got it around, and went and rescued Lot. And that's where the story ended last week, as Abraham was victorious. Well... What happened is this, one of the kings that was defeated and rescued by Abraham was the king of Sodom, verse 17 of Genesis 14. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chartaram and the kings who were with him. So the king of Sodom comes out to Lot to say, excuse me, to Abraham to say, thank you for rescuing us. But then, verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. That's a fascinating little passage. This king of Salem 
just appears out of nowhere. At the same time, the king of Sodom appears, and the king of Salem appears, and basically says, hey, I'm going to bless you, and Abraham tithes to this guy. It's kind of a fascinating thing right here. And he's called, verse 18, the priest of God Most High. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, there is no priesthood at this time. That is not even capable of happening because the Levites are the priests. And Levi's not even born yet. Aaron is the first high priest. He's not even around yet. So how can we have a priesthood that doesn't even exist yet? This is where it gets absolutely fascinating. Now, Melchizedek is not mentioned again if you look at your sheets until Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the context of Psalm 110 is talking about the Messiah. That the Messiah will be a priest in this line of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5, if you look at your sheets, starts tying Jesus into Melchizedek. And then in Hebrews 6, verse 20, it says that Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. If you look at the verse there, it says, Where the forerunner is entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Hebrews then tells us that Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now some of you right now have no idea what I'm talking about. And you may say, what's the big deal? Let's just break this down real simple. If you wanted to be king of Israel, what tribe would you have to come from? I'm throwing it out there. Who knows? Judah. It had to be a tribe from Judah. If you wanted to be a priest in Old Testament times, what tribe did you have to come from? The tribe of Levi. The Messiah has to be prophet, priest, and king. That's, that's It has to. How can the Messiah be a king from Judah and a priest from the tribe of Levi? It's not possible. It is not possible that the Messiah could be both from the tribe of Judah and from the tribe of Levi. It just doesn't work that way. So what happened is, God has ordained this priesthood of this guy by the name of Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek has a priesthood, and the way we get around this is Jesus is king from the tribe of Judah, but he's a priest from this guy Melchizedek. Now this is where it even gets a little more funky. Go, if you will, with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Because now, there's two priesthoods in the Old Testament. There's the Levitical priesthood of Aaron, which is your Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but there's this priesthood of this guy Melchizedek. And who is he? Well, basically, Hebrews 7, the whole chapter, is basically trying to tell you who this Melchizedek is. See, look at Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, we've already talked about that, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, Genesis 14, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. So Melchizedek's name means, if you're taking notes here, king of righteousness and king of peace. Look at verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, isn't that a strange little verse? What's Melchizedek's background? Verse 3. No father, no mother, no genealogy, no beginning of days nor end of life, but he's like the Son of God and he's a priest continually. What an interesting person. Verse 4. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. So don't think about that for a second. Abraham tithed to this guy. Abraham tithed to this guy. That's actually a very big point. So let's see what happens with this. 
And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from the brethren. They have also come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed them who had the promise. Basically, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is by Abraham tithing to Melchizedek, the Levitical priesthood was tithing to Melchizedek, which they're basically saying that Melchizedek's priesthood is more important than the Levitical priesthood. Now, verse 7. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. So by Melchizedek blessing Abraham, it shows that he's even better than Abraham. Verse 8. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom he has witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, verse 9, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Isn't that fascinating? So put this all together. This guy Melchizedek appears in Genesis 14. He's the king of Salem. And he brings bread and wine with him. He just shows up all of a sudden. He meets Abraham. Abraham tithes to him. And it kind of just disappears. There's this little verse in Psalm 110 that says, The Messiah will be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That's all we know in the Old Testament. All of a sudden now in Hebrews, Hebrews 5, says Jesus is related to Melchizedek. And then all of a sudden we find out in Hebrews chapter 6 that Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Then in Hebrews 7 we find out that the order of Melchizedek is more important than the Levitical priesthood. Because it goes on to say here in the second half of Hebrews chapter 7, if you look in verse 11, basically the Levitical priesthood were human beings that were sinful and not perfect. So what had to happen is there had to be a priesthood that was perfect. And the perfect priesthood is Melchizedek. Because if you would base your Messiah... Off the Levitical priesthood, you're basing your Messiah off sinful people. So you had to have this guy Melchizedek to have a priesthood through him that the Messiah could then still have the perfection of it. So now the question comes up, who is this guy? Well, look at the background of Melchizedek. Let's just kind of repeat some of this. Verse 3. No father, no mother, no genealogy, no beginning of days, no end of life, made like the Son of God, remains, remains a priest continually. He's from Salem, which Salem is Jerusalem. Bread and wine. Now, as soon as you think of bread and wine in the Bible, what do you think of? Communion. And the Bible says that his name means king of righteousness and king of peace. Jesus sure brings righteousness and peace. Now, there's a little fancy word there called theophany with a question mark beside it. I don't like to use a lot of big... Uh, um, Words like that, but theophany is a word that means an appearance of God in the Old Testament. First time I ever taught on this, I called it a theophany. I just want to throw that out there. And I had somebody in the Bible study just break out hysterically laughing because I mispronounced it. So it's theophany. It's an appearance of God in the Old Testament. Some people believe that this Melchizedek guy was an appearance of God in the Old Testament to basically say, Hey, I'm going to set right from the beginning that you're going to have this Levitical priesthood, you're going to have Aaron, you're going to have all this, but guess what? It's not good enough. And guess what happens if you study out Hebrews? As soon as you get to Hebrews 9, 10, and 11, if you keep reading the rest of Hebrews, the purpose of Hebrews 9, 10, and 11 is to say the Levitical priesthood, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, cannot save you from your sins. Only Jesus can save you from your sins. So it's almost like God in the Old Testament already set this up to say, listen, you're going to have this great priesthood with Aaron and the Levites, but it's still going to be sinful men. The only way I can make this right is I need to have a separate priesthood waiting in the wings that is perfect. 
Well, the only way you can have a perfect priesthood is if you don't have any humans involved in it. Because as soon as we get involved with stuff, we have a tendency to screw things up. And so this guy, Melchizedek, that appears out of nowhere. I mean, he just appears out of nowhere. He's the king of Jerusalem. We haven't even talked about Jerusalem yet. He's bringing bread and wine, which reminds us of communion. His name means king of righteousness and king of peace. Abraham sees the glory of him and tithes to him. He blesses Abraham, which according to Hebrews, the greater blesses the lesser. And by him tithing to Melchizedek, it's basically saying the Levitical priesthood is in submission to him. So a lot of people believe this Melchizedek is an appearance of God that sets up a greater priesthood that Jesus is the priest through. Now, full disclosure, going the other way, some people believe that this guy Melchizedek was a guy. That the Lord set up the secondary priesthood in Jerusalem just to kind of have it in the background because he knew he was going to need it and that this order of Melchizedek priest was just ordained and taken care of here throughout time. This where it comes to that third level that we talked about at the beginning of the message. It's not worth arguing about. It's not. My personal opinion, take it or leave it, I think it's kind of a spiritual matter here with the Lord. I think this is the God stepping in and taking care of the priesthood himself. I think it all backs up the evidence to it. Some people say, well, verse 3 of Hebrews 7 just means that it wasn't recorded. His mother, his father's genealogy wasn't recorded. Some people believe that this guy was an angel. I don't know. I think it's, it's a neat picture of Jesus. Salem, Jerusalem, bread and wine, communion. No beginning, no end, no days of life. Or he remains like the Son of God, King of Righteousness, King of Peace. Once again, go back to our first point. The Messiah has to be prophet, priest, and king. King has to be Judah. Priest has to be from the tribe of Levi. Jesus can't do both. How do you work that out? You have a separate priesthood through the order of Melchizedek, which is a holy ordained priesthood through God, and that's how you have that worked out and blessed. Now, we spent a lot of time on a point that I really just said doesn't matter. But this is the beauty of me teaching Wednesday nights. I get to do what I want. So I like this type of stuff. I like chewing on it, and it's fun to do that. The people that come on Sunday, they're not saved. We all know that. It's the Wednesday night people that love Jesus, and it's the Wednesday night people that really want to know about this type of stuff. And so this is the meat we get to chew on a little bit. So anybody got any quick questions, comments about that before we move on to the spiritual application point that we need to say here? Anybody got anything they want to say? Okay. Here's the point that really matters. Jump back to Genesis 14. Verse 17, king of Sodom appears. Verse 18, the king of Salem appears. We've already talked about who the king of Salem was. Look at verse 21. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Basically, just let me have my people back and you can have all the spoils of war. Verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will take... I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portions of the men who went with me. Anner, Eskal, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Basically, you're offering me the spoils of this victory, and he goes, I don't want it. Because if I take this, somebody could say, oh, look what the king of Sodom gave Abram. I don't want it. The only thing I'll take is the food that's already in their bellies. I'll take that. Now, I think this is an amazing point. Because if we believe that this Melchizedek, king of Salem, represents something bigger and greater, we already know what Sodom represents. I mean, the word Sodom just has such a horrible meaning even in the world today. So you have the king of Sodom 
sin, lust, debauchery, pleasure. And then you have the king of Salem, righteousness and peace. Both kings show up to Abraham at the same time. And what does Abraham do? Gives his full attention to the king of Salem, tithes to the king of Salem, is blessed by the king of Salem, and basically tells the king of Sodom, I want nothing you have to offer. Is that not a picture of us today in the world right now? There are two kings going for your attention. One is the king of Salem, righteousness and peace. It's the king Jesus Christ. The other is the king of Sodom. The Bible says that Satan is the god of this world. And the god of this world wants to give you everything. Just like Sodom, the king of Sodom did. And, and I'm telling you right now, you can leave tonight and you can go out into the world and you can have pleasure amongst pleasure upon pleasure. Hebrews says that sin is pleasurable only for a moment. But you can go to Sodom and you'd have a good time in Sodom for a while. But eventually that all comes back to bite you. And the king of Sodom is offering you whatever you want. You can go home tonight and look up any type of disgusting sin you want on the internet. It's, it's available. You can go home tonight and you can go pick up basically any type of drug or alcohol you want anywhere. You can go home tonight and think any thoughts you want. You can act any way you want. You can go to Sodom to your heart's content and you will find pleasure there, but only for a moment. And then when you fall away from that, there's going to be this sense of guilt, this sense of shame, this conviction from God, this condemnation from Satan. And you're going to look at the king of Sodom and say, why did I ever accept anything you had to offer? What good did it do me? Or you can go to the king of Salem that is offering you righteousness and peace. That's what his name means. He wants to bless you, according to Hebrews. And the reason we're doing communion tonight is he brought bread and wine with him. Because the king of Salem represents Jesus Christ. He represents a relationship with him. And I'm just telling you, every single day you get up, you have two kings waiting for your attention. It's the king of Sodom and it's the king of Salem. Which one will you choose? There are only two options. Look at this. Look at your verses at the bottom of your sheet. Joshua 24, 15. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua says there's two choices. You serve the real God or the false God. Romans 6, 16. Don't you realize, this is the New Living Translation, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Two options. See, now, always at this time, there's somebody who's really smart that says there's not two options, there's three options. God, or you're, as you would say, King of Salem, God, King of Sodom, sin, or I could just walk this own neutral path. Do you realize life really just gives you two choices? And if somebody always tells me, no, there's always a third choice. No, there's not. If you, when you go home tonight, you're going to come up to a stop sign. You have two choices. You either stop or you go. You come up to a red light, you either stop or you go. There are only two choices. There are so many things here with two choices. That's what life is. And what you see here right now is the Lord is making this abundantly clear. Two kings with two crowns are offering you everything they got. The king of Sodom will give you pleasure upon pleasure upon pleasure for a time. And then you'll be awful. Or the king of Salem will give you righteousness and peace for all of eternity. 
You just got to decide which king you want to serve. Now, we have a tendency to do this as Christians. We have a tendency to visit the king of Salem peace, usually on Wednesdays and Sundays and every now and then throughout the week. But we really like to stay at the king of Sodom's place. You know, it's a lot more fun. But then when we find ourselves feeling kind of gross and disgusting, we realize, okay, I shouldn't be at the king of Sodom's. We come back to the king of Salem's house. And guess what he does every single time? He opens up the door and lets you right in. But then the king of Salem does something really dumb. You know what he does? He leaves the door open. He allows you to leave to go back to the king of Sodom's house. He does. Now, as you're leaving to go back to pleasure at Sodom, he'll remind you saying, you don't want to do that. But he won't stop you. You know how many times in my Christian walk I've prayed, Lord... Stop my tongue. Stop my hand. Stop my thoughts. Because I hear the words coming out of my mouth and I don't want to say it. I don't want to think it. I don't want to click on it. I don't want to watch it. I don't. And I always feel like the Lord said, I have given you the ability to stop. It's called self-control. It's a gift of the Spirit. I can go to the king of Sodom's palace anytime I want. And I can stay there as long as I want. And it will be awful. Oh, it will be fun for a while, but it will be awful. King of Salem's house, he's offering me righteousness and peace. He's offering me a blessing. He's offering me the communion of bread and wine. He's offering me a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's offering me an eternal relationship with the Lord. And that's what we want. So I guess what it comes down to is this. The reason we're finishing with communion is, is tonight's the night to choose. Who do you want? Do you want Sodom or you want Salem? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And if you still think, well, I'm choosing option three, there is no option three. There's not. It, it, it's, it, tonight's the night. And what we're going to do is this. Jonathan's actually going to come up and he's going to lead you guys in communion. And I'm going to be in the back. And if you've got to struggle with something, maybe you find yourself visiting uh, Sodom's palace, come back and pray with me. I don't have all the answers, but I'll encourage you. I'll uplift you. I'll do what I can to help you. I'll try to show you verses, but I can't open my Bible, so I'm hoping I can to at least show you something. But Jonathan will lead you in communion here. And just one of the things with communion is this, and I know Jonathan will talk about it. He talks about, as Paul said, you know, that how we're supposed to examine ourselves before we partake of it. That's what this lesson is, examining yourself. Which king am I bowing down to? Because you only can bow down to one. Feel free to partake here of communion, but if there's something you want to pray about, I'll just be standing in the back. Come back, and I'll be willing to pray with you. So, Jonathan, will close you out here with communion, and uh, we'll go ahead for that. Marvin, come forward here.